long as you stay on your own side. Free to do anything you choose. Free to wait tables and shine shoes. Welcome everyone once again to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, living in America, or at least in Texas. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. You can find us at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. We're playing this week a clip from the new soundtrack to the new version of West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg. Stephen Garrett will be along presently to talk to me about that, and we're also going to talk to Book and Film Globe TV critic William Schwartz about The Expanse, which just launched season six on Amazon Prime. But before all that, let's talk about horror novels, the best horror novels of 2021. Philip Fricasse will be with me in just a minute to continue our year in review series. We'll be right back. Year in Review continues this week with the Year in Horror Fiction. Uh, Philip Fricasse, our horror correspondent, not our horrible correspondent, he's a horror writer himself and part of the horror community and is always right on top of what's going on and has done an amazing job for a Book and Film Globe over the years uh, chronicling trends and changes in the horror community. And Philip is here with me today to talk about the Year in Horror. Hello. Hey, Neil. How's it going, man? I am well, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, so you have the year in horror fiction up, and once again, like your pieces always do, you know, it's it, you've got the horror community, you, you have the pulse of it, or, yeah. or or the bleeding vein of it, if you want to, you know, whatever, whatever, <laughs> however you want to characterize it, but, you know, it's been a good year. Yeah, it's an amazing year for horror, and it's kind of been, as I mentioned in my article, it's it seems like every year I say this, that this has been the biggest year for horror. But for whatever reason, <laughs> you know, call it politics or call it pandemic, horror seems to really be thriving right now. And it goes beyond fiction, as you, I'm sure you, anyone who turns on their Amazon Prime account sees the 80 or 90 horror movies they've never heard of that pop up. And it's kind of exploding, and which is great for for the you know writers like myself and for all the writers in the community and you know it means we're you know we've always sort of been the the dark sheep of the fiction world you know even of the genre like genres already you know a step down and then go to horror you're kind of at the bottom of the bin as it were as far as respect from readership and critics and stuff so it's nice to see it's nice to see it thriving for sure Right. And beyond like sort of a top two or three horror writers like, you know, Stephen King and whatever, Peter Straub, uh, Dean Koontz or whatever. Like, but then beyond that, there's like, I don't want to call it a ghetto, but it's kind of like an underbelly, a dark underbelly of, of, mm-hmm. of the literary world. But, you know, what you point out so well in your piece is that there's this mix of both mainstream and independent books that are, are, are booming, that, the, you know, the big five publishers are publishing a lot of horror. And there's also a lot of startups. So let's start with the uh, mainstream what did you like this year? You you mentioned 30 books or so. We're not going to talk about all of those, but, you know, right. like, why don't you highlight a couple of them? Yeah. And, you know, and it's funny because, you know, when a book really blows up on the mainstream publishing side, it's kind of funny because they try really hard not to call it horror, right? They kind of classify it as thriller or supernatural thriller or whatever, but this stuff is horror. And the, the nice thing about horror is that, and which people don't realize, I think people come into horror with very preconceived 
notions as to what they're getting into. But the reality is there's a wide swath of uh, of types of horror. There's very literary horror. There's very quiet horror, and you know, and there's and and very suspenseful horror. So it, it, it's it's a it's a wide field. And yeah, so 2021 uh, was a, like I said a great year. A couple of the authors I mentioned, you know, like uh, C.J. Tudor, who's kind of one of those perennial authors. Is you know usually a new book every year coming out from her. Um, she kind of slides in that slipstream between horror and mystery, but um, but her stuff is amazing. Uh, Zoya Stage has really come on big lately. She had a book called Baby Teeth a few years ago that was a big hit, and now her new book is called Getaway, and that's really been getting really a lot of critical adoration. And uh, Chuck Wendig, another perennial horror author, he's been doing it for a long time, but he kind of hit it big with Book of Accidents this past year and Wanderers the year before. I think the two books that probably stand out to me the most from the last year are a book by Stephen Graham Jones called My Heart is a Chainsaw. And Stephen's an interesting guy because he's been around for a long time. And he's got, if you look him up on Amazon, you'll see he's got like 20 or 30 titles up there. Right. Well, you you interviewed him for us. Yeah. Yeah. His interview is on, on the website. Yeah. So people can check that out. And he's a really fascinating guy. He teaches, you know, he's a professor. He teaches creative writing. But what's interesting about Stephen is he's been publishing very, very indie stuff for a long time. And but he's in a great example, you know, of what's going on in the genre overall, which is, you know, his last two books were New York Times bestsellers. You know, All the Good Indians, which came out in 2020, was a massive hit. And he's, a, you know, and he really, he gets into the, the Native American roots with a lot of his work, but he also is a very contemporary horror writer. And uh, his stuff is terrifying. So he he wrote a book called My Heart is a Chainsaw in this past year that did, uh, that did really well. And the sequel is going to come out next year. And then the other writer I wanted to just tap on was uh, Catriona Ward, who wrote a book called The Last House on Needless Street. And um, what a great title. Great title. And one of those books that got Stephen King very excited, which kind of always when, when King's blurbing and talking about your book without you having to ask him, you know, if he's tweeting about it after reading a galley or whatever. It's a great thing for the for the book. It's a great thing for everybody, you know, a rising tide and, and ships and all that. But Catriona's book was what was interesting about Last House on Needless Street was it was kind of um it was a very different book. You know, it was very almost experimental. And so the the way it's told is fascinating. And it's on top of that, it's a it's a terrifying and very dark and very violent story. But that book got a lot of buzz and and for and rightly so. I I, I loved it. It was probably one of my favorite horror books of the year, if not in the top slot. Her new book is coming out uh, next year as well. And so, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how she parlays the success of the last one into this new one. I'm, I'm, I haven't read it yet, but I'm dying to. Interesting that you say, uh, you know, Stephen Graham Jones and Chuck Wendig both also have new books coming out. You know, horror, the horror writers are very prolific. These, these are not your literary writers. You know, there's not Jonathan Franz and who like spent seven years. Pondering no. Great. Next, his next great work. And then it comes and everyone praises it. <laughs> like other genre writers, there's obviously great writers in horror, but you know, it's kind of, it's a kind of a pulp sensibility where they're gr- constantly grinding out copy. Yeah, I think there's I think there's I think there's categories like anything. I mean, there's guys like Brian Evanson who are incredibly literary and have received all the literary awards a guy can get. And he's more of a short story guy, but but he's one of those guys that comes out with stuff pretty infrequently. And Dan Schoen is another example. You might even you might have even read one of Dan Schoen's book. Very literary writer, yes. uh, won a lot of awards. And his, you know, and he writes a book. His books come out about once every three or four years. So he and they're usually bigger books. So he takes his time. But yeah, there's definitely the guy 
guys. And I look, I want to be one of those guys, right? Cause it's that you come out with it every year. You have like a new story to tell. Uh, there's a chorus of writers who are writing reliable annual books like uh, Grady Hendrix, Paul Tremblay, Josh Mallerman, Riley Sager recently adding out, add on to that would be um, Rachel Harrison. Who's now kind of coming out with the annual uh, horror novel. Um, Sylvia Marina Garcia, another independent writer, horror writer whose book was arguably in 2020, you know, Mexican Gothic, was arguably one of the biggest books of the year. And she's a horror writer. She came from the indie horror field. I mean, yeah. I've well, I've been to conferences with her, you know, so so it's interesting what's happening. Let's transition to there. So you you feature yeah. independent horror writers quite a bit in this, and that that is uh, something that has really uh, elevated the genre is that are these uh, small publishers who are, um, you know, allowing new writers to come up through the ranks and either either uh, get picked up by the big houses and get big advances or just elevate the smaller houses to a bigger status. I compare it a lot when I talk about it. I compare it a lot to the music industry, you know, especially maybe especially during the 80s and 90s when the, you know, a great way for a band to get recognition was they'd come out with a demo tape or whatever and they'd shop it around to the big labels or they'd come out with an independent hit like Nirvana and then they'd have their big mainstream hit uh, with a bigger label. So a lot of it is like that. It's kind of like the AAA, you know, the farm club for a major league baseball team. You know, you kind of cut your teeth with the indies and, and then, you know, the cream sort of rises to the top and the writers who have more of a mainstream readership or can gain a more of a mainstream readership, you know, tend to tend to take that next step. But it's a really fascinating world. And it's also, you know, definitely an exponentially growing field, the independent horror field, but not not in a negative way. It's really becoming more voices and also more diverse voices, voices that haven't been necessarily getting a lot of attention from the gay community or from, you know, the trans community or from the, you know, minority community that are writers and are not all not necessarily known for horror. It's all been like straight white dudes for the last 50 years. Right. So it's really fun and energizing to see all these new perspectives come into the field. And it's really raising the bar for everything. And it's getting a lot of it attention from critics and from the big publishers and from bookstores, you know, that's yeah, the kind lot, of stuff that they want, you know, that's lot, what they're looking lot, for. A lot more female writers than there used to be. In oh the yeah. And that, and that's really cool. So I noticed, I did notice that you included yourself in the list of keys. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't <laughs> cut that. You have a, you had to, right. I would do the same thing. You have a, you have a collection of stories coming out in 2022 called beneath the pale sky. So, uh, Keep an eye out for Philip Fercasi's book. And I wanted to, for 2022, I wanted to highlight a couple of writers who are familiar to me. Well, you mentioned Catriona Ward uh, has a new book and Josh Mailerman, who you we've featured a lot on the site. Yeah. So I'll yeah. give shout outs to them. You know, there's a book called Devil House by John Darnielle. Is, isn't that the guy from the Mountain Goats? Yeah, that's the Mountain Goats guy. Now he's a horror writer. He's, he's been a horror writer. He, this will be his third novel. Um, I think Wolf and White Van came out, uh, guessing, I think it was about five years ago, maybe six years ago. Uh, Universal Harvester came out a couple years ago. And yeah, Devil House is coming out in January, I believe, 2022. I love, so, the, cover. I love the cover for Devil House. It reminds me of like, that's like an old school Am Amityville horror, the Omen exactly. cover. So yeah, I, I love that cover too. I saw, I'm glad you put that on the site because it's yeah, a great looking I cover. Like, graphically. Also, another writer who I love is Sarah Grand. Uh, mm -hmm. She writes mostly like kind of, she writes like noir for the most part, but yeah. she's got a, she's got a horror book coming out in 2022 called the book of the most precious substance. I, I feel like, like, I don't know if she's underrated, but she's certainly not a household name. And I just, I just think she's one of the best genre writers alive. Yeah. 
her her I guess you'd call them crime mystery noir yeah in that category uh, Claire de, those Claire DeWitt books are beyond uh, they're, yeah they're Claire DeWitt yeah Love yeah them. they're amazing and they're really and they're, and they're growing in popularity I think the last one was a bestseller but she she sneaks in these horror novels every few years and she yeah, she wrote a book called Come Closer which is a book about possession which is absolutely terrifying and uh it's kind of a cult hit even with the horror crowd everybody's read that book and so yeah so it's interesting i'm very curious to see now when she did you know she goes full horror again with this new book i'm very curious to see how dark she goes because she gets pretty she gets even for horror guys she gets pretty dark yeah so, she has a very uh, even even in her non-horror book she's a very unsettling point of view which is good for a writer you shouldn't write writing shouldn't always make you uh feel comfortable and horror definitely doesn't uh but you know phillips articles about horror do make me feel comfortable because they uh, always bring a lot of traffic and they're always good and entertaining and i'm, I'm grateful that philip is around to sort of uh, chronicle this this new golden age of horror and uh, philip Fercazzi, happy holidays from all of us at book and film globe we will talk to you soon thanks neil This weekend sees the wide release of a new version of a classic Oscar-winning Hollywood musical made by a classic Oscar-winning Hollywood director. It's not Martin Scorsese's The Sound of Music or Francis Ford Coppola's version of The King and I, which actually didn't win an Oscar. But no, it's Steven Spielberg directing a new version of West Side Story. And Stephen Garrett is here to talk about this with me like he always is. He's always here to talk about movies. Our segment, Let's Talk About Movies with Stephen. It's just (laughs) turning into that. So, Stephen, West Side Story, directed by uh, Steven Spielberg, no relation. Uh, You you love this version. (laughs) You know, I I, I actually really did. I I run hot and cold on Spielberg. It really just depends what kind of movies he's made. And he's been around long enough to make movies that I think people are going to like and dislike. You know, he he has... uh, Wide tastes and eclectic tastes. I would not have thought that he could do this, pull off a remake of West Side Story, which also is not necessarily one of my favorite movies. It's always felt a little embalmed, a little stuffy, a little corny, a little square. Um, so I never really got why people liked seeing tough guys pirouetting and and doing splits and everything. It just seemed silly and corny. Well, for me, yeah, hang on. So I, I get it. People love it. It's a classic, whatever. Well, the real it, I just never really clicked for me. Right, but the real strength of West Side Story is the Leonard Bernstein score and the Stephen Sondheim lyrics. I mean, no one, no one, yeah. no one loved and Rita Moreno. No one loves West Side Story because of George Shakiris. Um, you know, and, and while Natalie Wood it was, you know, a beautiful, charming movie star, she wasn't her version of Maria wasn't exactly her finest hour. No, 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 no. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it was very much of its time and it was really clearly loved and celebrated by a lot of people who won a ton of Oscars and made a ton of money. But I guess my point being that I went into this screening thinking, eh, we'll see what this is. You know, I, I remember hearing that he wanted to remake it and I thought, good Lord, why would you want to remake one of the most popular and celebrated? It's like remaking Citizen Kane or remaking Sound of Music. It just seems like like a death wish. Like, why would you do that? But to my amazement, I found myself really enthralled in a way that I had never been with the original film. And and loving the music, but the way it's performed and uh, Gustavo Duhamel is directing the orchestra, it just feels vigorous, it feels alive. Um, and I think they just contextualized the music and story in a way that made it much more appealing to me. I, I was really dazzled. 
Well, one of the things that you mentioned in your review and that I've seen mentioned elsewhere is that the story is set in the sort of rubble of a neighborhood that was demolished to build Lincoln Center, which is not a perspective that the 1961 West Side Story could have possibly had. Well, exactly. I mean, at the time, that movie was modern, right? It took place present day. Uh, there was no perspective because nobody knew what was about to happen. Um, and now, of course, we have hindsight. We have 50 years to look back on. We know what that turns into. And people speak in, in kind of eerily prescient ways. I mean, unbelievably prescient ways. But clearly, Tony Kushner, who wrote the script, is putting words into people's mouths, uh, predicting things that they wouldn't have known at the time. And I think, frankly, they – I mean, I've read a couple different sources saying that they broke ground in 1959 on Lincoln Center. So I don't think they were really bulldozing to that extent in 1957. I think that might be artistic license. Um, so I think they pushed up the timeline a bit so that you would really feel this sort of devastation around them, which I mean, the film was literally in 1961 or 1960 when I guess it came out in 61, whenever they shot the movie. There is a little bit of that sense of rubble, but they're also not shooting in that neighborhood per se. And it's just a stark revelation that I think completely enhances the film. Right. And the original West Side Story had, you know, sort of a sort of a nascent liberalism, whereas they considered racial conflict bad. And it was presenting Puerto Rican people as at least having two facets, you know, if not being multifaceted. But, but you know, this obviously was shot in a much more um, – you know, I guess for lack of a better term, woke era, racially conscious era, right? Where it's like you're you're dealing with things in in a in a much more sophisticated way. And Spielberg, I'm sure, doesn't shy away from that. Well, and I think it's also it's like an everything old is new again sense of, oh, my God, you know, like that racial tension of Puerto Ricans moving into a neighborhood, I think, was still fairly new for the 20th century. So mid-century New York had this influx that was still a rather novel thing, whereas now we've lived with it for over 50, 60, 70 years. And yet we know how tense racially this country is and how divided it is, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think, if anything, it's not so much woke as it is exhausted by the fact that this is still happening. And it's a lot, you know, I mentioned this, that it, it feels grittier, for lack of a better word. There's rubble and dust and sweat in a way that there isn't in the original. The original, everybody seems so impeccably groomed, you know? I think that was another thing that kind of threw me off from that movie is it just, I didn't take the danger of the street gangs that seriously. It just seems absurd and milk toast. Right. The, the street gangs in West Side Story were like, you know, in like obviously gay sailors in, in old <laughs> cult, right? Yeah, like, basically. They're, 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 they're like the were like They were like the, you know, the, 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 the sailors in South Pacific. I mean, just everybody, like everybody's hair is in a perfect like quaff, you know, uh, Bernardo does not look threatening at all. He looks like a mannequin. You know, they all look like mannequins that are dancing, whereas here they don't. They still dance and the dancing is fantastic. And I mean, that's the thing, too. Jerome Robbins is dancing in the original West Side Story. Dazzling, but also jarring, at least to me, that it, it took away the threat. Here, I think they're able to integrate the dancing in a way that feels, if not organic, then just not as pretty. You know, it, it feels a little more earthy. Speaking of pretty, uh, Rachel Zegler, who is a Broadway uh, – I wouldn't say a veteran. She's a young woman, but she's an experienced Broadway performer, plays Maria in this, and she's getting very good reviews for what she does. 
You know, I that's kind of surprised me. I've, I've seen and read that, and I, I thought she was fine. I don't think there are really any amazing performances. I think Ansel Elgort is is a very dashing, empathetic young man, but not a new Brando. You know, I think the people who really jump out are, are Mike Feist as a riff. He's just fantastic. And Ariana DeBose uh, as Anita is just incredible. I mean, she is just she lights up the screen the way that Rita Moreno did when she played that role in the original film. You know, I mean, it's a it's a juicy, meaty role, of course. Those, but those are, Yeah, those are the more interesting parts than Tony and Maria. I mean, Tony and Maria are like these kind of milk toast love. They are. They really are. There's just not like a lot of depth to them. They're they're just sort of yeah. these uh, pieces that everyone else revolves around. And Rita Moreno is also in this version. They they rewrote a part to to make to make space. Well, not rewrote. They kind of created a new role. I, she's basically the the Doc role, but in this version, in this alternate universe, in this multiverse, Doc is dead, and Rita Moreno is playing a woman named Valentina, who is his widow, and she now owns Doc's druggist. And it's it's a I think a really shrewd idea. It's a wonderful idea because it just it actually introduces the idea that it is possible. It's not completely out of nowhere that that Tony might see falling in love with Maria as he, he, he can see it as something that could happen because he's seen it happen and happen successfully at Doug's druggist and with the woman who is basically his surrogate mother. You know, she kind of took took him in, gave him a place to sleep and and gave him work and food and everything. So it, it actually makes it um, somewhat more understandable and reasonable that he might believe that he could have a romance with a Puerto Rican girl because he's seen one of the people he loves, you know, tremendously in the film is a Puerto Rican girl who married a guy and and lived the American dream. Speaking of uh, Puerto Rican girls, one of the things you point out and that I've seen pointed out elsewhere is that there are segments of the movie that are in Spanish without subtitles, which I think is really uh, new and interesting. It is. You know, I mean, uh, I think um, I've seen movies certainly do it before uh, they dip their toe in it. But there are extended moments where you're surprised that they don't. And I'm certainly not fluent in Spanish, but I think I know enough to know when actors are repeating in English what they've just said in Spanish, you know which is the other thing that you normally see if there are no subtitles. Usually it's just because it gets repeated into English <laughs> like a second or two later. But here you get a sense like, oh, no, no, there are nuances that I'm missing clearly. And that's deliberate. And that's pretty bold and pretty audacious and in a very good way. Well, I am fluent in Spanish. My mother was a, a Spanish teacher. And in fact, I do a, a Spanish language version of this podcast. Yeah, I have your role. <laughs> Played by uh, someone else. I don't know if you've ever listened to. He's uh, probably a lot more eloquent than to I the am. Book, the book and film podcast in Espanol, but it is it is <laughs> really uh, it's really uh, groundbreaking that we're is able. That, to do uh, that. What would that be? Would that be libro y película? Libros del, y películas del mundo. Del mundo. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. Es para todos. 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 <laughs> That's that, that 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 we're changing. We're changing the world. Uh, Stephen Garrett reviewed West Side Story this week, and we'll be back next week to talk about some other movie. <laughs> Perhaps there's two other always movies. another movie. There's always another movie. Thank goodness there are other movies. Stephen Hasta Luego. We'll talk to you soon. Gracias. This week saw the launch of a new season of The Expanse on Amazon Prime. This is the sixth season 
of the sci-fi show that is based on a series of novels, nine novels. And William Schwartz has written a piece about The Expanse this week. Hello, William. How are you? Hello, I'm doing fine. So you're a fan of The Expanse, as am I. I, I have not seen all – well, the sixth season just appeared. I have not seen the previous uh, – all the previous five seasons. It's a lot of episodes. It's a lot of sort of a gritty space opera to get through, but I'm glad Honestly, you Honestly, more managed – Personally, I think it's more manageable than trying to binge through something like Star Trek because back then you had like 20 episode seasons, but Expanse is only like 10 apiece. True, it's true. Yeah, but you can I mean, get through I, it a lot faster. I only have, I only have, there's only so many hours and so much content in the day. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, and the thing I like about The Expanse is that a lot of the the early seasons aired on Sci-Fi. So you know, and, and if you're watching on um, Amazon Prime, there there's no commercials, so they're really only like 40 minutes. So you you can you can bust through it pretty fast. And one of the things I like about The Expanse is that there's a lot of exciting space action, right? There's gunfights, there's there's spaceship fights, there's a lot of punching, you know, it, it doesn't lack for tension and action. It's not a real talky show. It's still nevertheless extremely well paced. And yeah, you got at least one major plot beat every single episode and not too much in the way of distractions. Even when you get to later seasons and you're, they're juggling like three or four at once as the cast of characters slowly expands and uh, contracts sometimes because this is a character death is real kind of show and they do kind of pop up out of nowhere. Yeah, The Expanse is set in some point in the future, a few hundred years, 200, 300 years, could be slightly less. I don't know. But basically, you've got three main populations of humans in, in the Milky Way. You've got people who live on Earth. You've got people who live on Mars. They're called Martians, but they're human. And then you have Belters, who are the sort of most intriguing advancement of the show. These are people who live on various asteroids or moons of, uh, you know, other of Jupiter and Saturn or Mars, and they're sort of like the uh, the gritty working class of of the galaxy. The whole design of the Belters is really where most of it gets into, because while the Inners all have their more they're much bigger populations, but they're also much more homogenous populations. With the Belters, you have everything from pirates who have elaborate tattoos and speak in pigeon to scientists like there is a botanist that appears at one point uh, who's very good with plants. And plants are extremely important for maintaining your oxygen in environments like these moon stations. One minor point, and this is one of the background world building details that I appreciate that comes up every so often, is that before we're actually introduced to the Ganymede station as an important plot point, we can actually see in previous episodes that in most of the bars that we see in the belt, most of their best beer actually comes from Ganymede for the exact reasons explained. It's the most biologically effective, the most self-sustaining. And they don't get into this too much, but it's commonly understood that it's not as nice to live on the belt as it is to just live on a planet. Right. And that's what I love about The Expanse is it's very gritty, realistic science fiction, as you point out in your piece. You know, Star Trek is a ludicrous fantasy. Um, and, and these current shows of Star Trek that are running, you know, Picard and Discovery have some of the same elements, but they lack the sort of immediacy and the sort of relevance that I feel like this show has. Like this show really animates current political conflicts, environmental conflicts, I think extremely well. Yeah, my extremely long article didn't quite have time to get into this, but looking at the way either show depicts the military is really significant because in Star Trek, that's that's always a thing to kind of have to tiptoe around. The Starfleet is basically the military. They, I mean, they act like it's not really like they're really all about exploration and all that stuff, which is 
the common Western worldview of what the military is supposed to be, that they're noble and heroic, and occasionally they run into a few bad apples that have to be dealt with, but on the whole, we're supposed to like them. Expanse has a completely different approach. By and large, most of the military figures that we see aren't trustworthy. Right, and so our heroes, the heroes of the show, you know, there's different protagonists who kind of come and go, but the the main focus of the show is this sort of maverick crew of uh, pilots and sort of space cowboys who fly around on this Martian gunship called the Rosinante, which is the name of Don Quixote's horse. Another fun little detail that the show, you know, includes. And they're this team, and they have to work together to fight everyone's battles for them. And they, you know, it's it's exhausting watching them try to navigate all these different interests. It wasn't until, honestly, mostly until the fourth season that I really just kind of was able to finally conceptualize that this was like a permanent crew, because that's something really interesting in the first season is when the whole thing is being set up, everything seems incredibly ad hoc. And the stuff is just being set up as it goes, as the dangerous situation escalates. And even though all the main characters know each other because they were on the original ice hauler, they don't trust each other at the beginning. And their outlooks and their personalities are all very, very different. They're, they're kind of like the A-team in space in some ways. I mean, I know that sounds reductive, but it's it's one of the things that keeps the series from being too ponderous is that there is there is a lot of sort of fun um, kind of team activity going on. There's always a lot of tension and they all have different skills. And, you know, there's there's like it's gen- there's lots of genuine personality clash. I mean, there's a great line in the fifth episode where in describing Amos, a character not not mentioned in the review. Um, somebody says he doesn't like me, but I trust him to take a bullet for me, which really sums up a whole lot of the character relationships on the show is that if they try to make an effort to understand what each other's material interests are, because that's what matters. That's the only thing they can trust is whatever it is that they actually want to do. Like the secretary general struggles with getting people to trust her because she has to emphasize what her interests are. And so many of the more powerful or the wealthier characters on the show are so inherently untrustworthy that she has to frame everything in completely utilitarian terms. She doesn't want or she get destroyed. Well, in part because she doesn't get anything to gain from it. It matters more what you get from any given action as opposed to whether you are trying to be a good person. Because yes. she's a fabulous character. She's kind of a, the, the ultimate puppet master in some ways. Uh, and, you know, her whole thing is like political manipulation. She's, you know, she's a woman in her 60s and she's not a warrior, but she is like just the most masterful politician I've seen on a TV show. It's really it's really quite something to watch, watch her work. And that character played by a, an Indian actress who has this like a husky voice that would make Brenda Vaccaro blush. And she is just so gripping and fantastic and every time i watch her my wife is like my wife loves this show and she's like i want her wardrobe <laughs> yeah she's got a, a fantastic regal delivery it's i don't exactly like using the word in a context like this but it's very vaguely ethnic and exotic in a way that is very distinctive but it doesn't define her character because like you know, like you say you basically see her as a pupper master and the way she dresses the wardrobe the entire way she carries herself it's all a very important part of that it's all the subtle nuances yeah. of the way she acts and it feels more like futuristic in the sense that okay this is familiar to me right. like i've seen people act this way but never in this particular kind of context and there is not a hint or a whiff of stereotype throughout it and it's just an absolutely fabulous performance right and that's one thing you point out very well in the review 
review is that this is an extremely multi-ethnic show. I mean, every major character, except for Thomas Jane in the first couple of seasons, is played by a person of color. Uh, but but that's just kind of the natural wave of the future. Um, and it's never it's never never mentioned the the uh, tensions are all between the people from different planets and ways of living and not among like, you know, ethnicities. And so that's it, it's refreshing to see our current tensions played out in a different context. There's a fine distinction being made between something like race or tribe in this context. And in the context of the show, tribe is what really matters. And explicitly laid out in the dialogue is just one character talking about how in a certain kind of crisis situation, everybody just devolves into their tribes, which is, despite being completely irrelevant to the subject that he is talking about, a really good description of how and why the Belters sing, because they are basically at the constant point of crisis and it drives them to do desperate things. And rather than being even slightly helpful about it, the more likely response they get either from people from Earth or from Mars is that they just get shot at. Right. So, all right. So listen, if you're having trouble figuring out what the heck William and I are talking about, I recommend you go to Amazon Prime uh, and you watch The Expanse. It's it's a ripping show. It's a lot of fun. It's a great binge. If you're home with a, a cold or you're just uh, sitting on the couch trying to relax. I mean, I wouldn't say call it a relaxing show, but it is, I think, one of the best shows on TV. And so I'm so glad we got a chance to write about it and talk about it. William, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you soon. All right, thanks, William Schwartz, for talking to me about season six of The Expanse, now airing on Amazon Prime. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking about West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg and Philip Fricasse for running down the best horror books of 2021 and giving us a little preview of what's coming up in 2022. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and so much more. On The Expanse, space is the place. So said Sun Ra back in the 1970s. So he still says today, this is what's going to be playing when people drift off into space finally. They're going to be very surprised because it's quite avant-garde, but I think they'll like it, and I think you'll like it. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll talk to you soon. This could be the first movie ever to win Best Picture twice. It really could be. So it's like West Side Story won in 1961, and then in 2022, maybe there'll be like a, a, a new a Ben-Hur that is actually gay. <laughs> That's going to win Best Picture. I tell you, man, I mean, I could see it happen, and I could see it happen just because Oscars have been so afraid of being irrelevant, and frankly have been irrelevant, for a, a few years now. Yeah. But I tell you, man, it's going to be interesting. I mean, are people going to come see this movie? Are they going to leave their houses? Do they give a yeah. shit? I, I saw an article today. It was like, uh, West Side Story debuts to 800,000 in Thursday previews. I'm like, there oh, 800,000? Jesus Christ. Spider-Man, on the other hand. Oh, my God. Is going to make $600 billion. Space is space the place. Yeah, space is the place. Space is the place. Space is the place.
Thank you. Thank you.